Hey, good morning, Bentonville Church of Christ, family and friends. Here we are at the beginning of the Holy Week. This is what is traditionally known as Palm Sunday, and we're still separate from each other in our homes and celebrating the communion together with our families or maybe by ourselves, and yet we're connected by the Holy Spirit with all of the believers in this church and around the world who celebrate the Lord Jesus today. And so it's in that spirit of unity and of thanksgiving for what God has done to bind us together that we're here together this morning and we love you and we miss you so much. Ecclesiastes 5.2 has been on my heart and my mind today. Do not be hasty to speak. Do not be hasty to let your heart speak a word before God, because God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. I want to pray a prayer that comes from actually a contemporary Christian song that was sung by Mercy Me and I think by Matt Redman and maybe a few others as a way to open this message today. So maybe you would pray these words with me. Word of God, speak. Would you pour down like rain, washing our eyes to see your majesty, to be still and know that you're in this place. Please let me stay and rest in your holiness. Word of God, speak. Holy Spirit, let this be true for us. Jesus Christ, let this be true for us. Father in heaven, let this be true for us. We pray to you in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the back of that colt of a donkey and the people wave the palm branches and celebrate his arrival, he comes in as a king. And yet he goes into the temple and he immediately begins to lay down some battle lines he cleanses the temple, or as we might say, he interrupts. He comes in and he stops the sacrifices. He drives out the money changers. He drives out the animals that are there. He says that God's house was to be a house of prayer, and yet it's become a den of thieves or of robbers. Jesus isn't making friends when he does this, interrupting the temple. He's already been mobilizing himself and his followers as a sort of mobile temple in the wilderness by offering the forgiveness of sins to people based on faith. Uh, this is temple offering to say, if you bring your gift to God, he will give his gift to you. He's disassociating the forgiveness of sins from that central power structure. And nobody in the Jewish authorities are happy about this. And yet, this moment when Jesus is worshiped and praised is almost like the calm before the storm. For the first few days of Holy Week, it's as if things might not get that bad. You've probably stood outside before, like I am right now, with the breeze blowing across your face and sensed in the air that a storm is coming, that there is a shadow looming. We all know the feelings and the sense we have felt it in the air when it just seems like there's some oxygen, like there is a certain stillness and a little bit of a, a whipping or twisting gusty breezes that blow up and then become still again 
in which we know to anticipate that a storm is coming, especially in the springtime. There can be some real golly washers here in Arkansas at this time of year, can't there? And sometimes they're incredibly destructive. They can flood our stream beds and our lakes and flood out roads and spin up tornadoes. We're still praying and hoping along with the people of Jonesboro who experienced such a destructive storm just a week ago. We're hoping and praying for their town to be put back together, for their lives to be mended. And so we know that these spring storms can be a serious thing. Jesus, in this moment in the Gospels, seems to be in the calm before the storm. The people are praising him. Things are going well at the beginning of Holy Week. And yet, Passover is coming. The Passover lamb will be sacrificed. Jesus celebrates it in the upper room with his followers. And even there, there is betrayal in their midst because Judas has already given his heart over to Satan so that Satan can put an idea in his mind, plant in his mind to betray the Lord. And so it's as if when we get to this part of the Gospels, we can sense the climax is coming. If all of Scripture is a unified story that points to Jesus, that leads to Jesus, then this moment in the Gospels in Jerusalem is near the pinnacle of the story. And we find Jesus in the garden, as we talked about last week, praying to the Father, take this cup from me. The storm is looming, the clouds are gathering, the, the shadow of death is hovering over the Son of God. Psalm 23 has never been more real than it was in this moment for Jesus. It's probably never been more real in your lives than it has been recently as we face both the regular burdens of life with the addition of this worldwide pandemic. I don't know how it's impacted you so far. We have some friends that have lost their jobs. That's hard to bear. We have had some friends who were sick and self-quarantining and worried that they might be contagious and they don't want to pass that on to friends and family. So far, I feel blessed that I don't know anyone who has died from the COVID-19 virus. Uh, and yet, we know that that very likely might happen sooner or later. And so many people are connected to someone who has suffered, been on a respirator, or even lost their life. The storm, in a way, is gathering. This is a dark time for our town, for our world. And it seems appropriate, in a sense, that right now we're in the church's season of Lent, which is a season of repentance, of sobering ourselves before God, and without speaking too many words, looking to God for answers about what needs to change inside of my own heart, and what I need to change within my actions in this world, what God is hoping will be the redemption of his world this season and this year. Right now, it's as if we're in Lent squared. And not only are we in a season anticipating Easter, but right now sitting in with Jesus, his betrayal, his false trial, the mocking, and the cruelty that's shown to him. But also in our own lives, we just cannot pretend right now that everything is okay. So this is 
Maybe the most appropriate time to be in a scripture, like the one we're in today in Matthew chapter 27. Now this is a long reading. Verses 11 through 54 is, is a, quite a long reading. And in fact, we could add to it. If you wanted to back up, you could read everything from when Judas shows up at the garden to betray the Lord all the way through the end of chapter 27. And it's all part of this one night, this one moment in Jesus's life. And today, I just want us to see a few things from this scripture. I don't know if they will help us in the sense of that we will walk out of here with application, with a to-do list, with some big challenge or an epiphany. It's more that as we sit in this scripture with Jesus today, we want to remember that God is present even in these worst of moments. That it was in fact Jesus who leads the way into this very darkest of storms. That Jesus gives us a path, a pattern, an example to follow in what he endures. Here's a couple of things I hope that you'll notice about Matthew 27 along with me. Jesus endured the darkness with very few words. If you back up and you look at chapters 26 and 27, you'll notice that when Jesus is praying in the garden, he says to God, not my will, but yours be done. From that moment, he really doesn't say too many things. He mentions to the uh, apostles that scripture and prophecy must be fulfilled. So that's about to happen. And then Judas walks in. To Judas, Jesus says, come uh, do what you've come to do, friend. I don't know if I've ever noticed this before, but maybe the last word that Jesus ever speaks to Judas, his betrayer, is friend. Do what you've come to do, friend. He doesn't waste words and he doesn't mince words. He just says, the time has come. And then as we follow Jesus through these moments in chapter 26 and 27, when he's taken before the high priest and then taken before Pilate, the governor, and then crucified, Jesus doesn't say very many things at all. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 27, from the time he's on trial with Pilate, Jesus only has two sayings that total six words in the original language. And so on trial in chapter 26 in front of Caiaphas, he says, he's asked, is he the Messiah? Is he the king of the Jews? Is he the son of God? And he says to Caiaphas, well, you have said so. And then he mentions that Daniel 7 is going to be fulfilled in their sight, that they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of glory with the ancient of days or with the mighty one. But then whenever he sees Peter in his moment of denial. Jesus basically just looks at him and says, by the morning, you, you will have done this three times and then you'll hear the rooster crow. It's just a very, one sentence, very abrupt comment to Peter. And then to Pilate in chapter 27 that we read from today. Two words in the original language, just two words. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, in the starkest way I could translate the Greek, you say. You say it. You say that it's so. You're the one who has said it. Maybe even we could hear a question in this. Do you say so, Pilate? Two words. On the cross, Jesus says four words. 
quoting from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the original language is four words, Eli, Eli, Lema Sabachthani. Wow. Now we know he said some other things. Uh, the other gospels remind us that he said a few other things from the cross. And yet, the way that Matthew has written this story for us, following the leading of the Holy Spirit, makes it clear that Jesus was not relying on many words to get out of trouble. Jesus wasn't arguing his way out of this. He wasn't explaining it away. He wasn't giving cheap or desperate answers. He wasn't pleading for his life. In fact, what we do have in one of the other Gospels is that Pilate says, don't you know I have authority over your life? And Jesus says, you only have that because it was given to you from above. Jesus is resting confidently in the surrender that he has offered to God in the middle of this pain that he's enduring, this intense mockery that he is enduring. This underlines that when Jesus said, your will be done in Gethsemane, that he meant it. He wasn't going to back out at the last minute and explain it all away. He wasn't going to argue with the authorities. Jesus' contention about this cup that he had to drink was with the Father, not with the governing authorities, not with the Sanhedrin, not with the high priest, not with Peter, not even with Judas, his betrayer. He doesn't quibble with them. And we see in the story that some unusual people come to Jesus' defense. There are others who speak a word for him. Uh, maybe most notably is Pilate's wife, who says to Pilate, don't get involved with this man. I've been bothered because of dreams about him. She comes to his defense in a very odd way. Uh, Pilate himself comes to the defense of Jesus in a way by offering up uh, Barabbas instead of Jesus for the crowd. Uh, uh, he, in fact, he offers, uh, I'm sorry, he offers Jesus to the crowd when the crowd asks for Barabbas. But in this moment, it's as if Pilate is saying, this man doesn't seem to have done anything wrong. So in his kind of backward way, he comes to his defense. And then he even says, I wash my hands of this matter. And the people say, well, we'll take the blame for it then. Uh, we know from one of the other gospel accounts that one of the thieves on the cross, this rebel or criminal, whatever it was that he's done to be there, he, he's guilty and he knows it. And yet he comes to Jesus' defense. And then most beautifully, Matthew reminds us that the whole world comes to Jesus' defense. Not the people in the world, but the earth itself shakes when he dies. The curtain in the temple is split open. Many dead people are raised to life and they wander about the city for a little while. Uh, during Jesus' crucifixion, there is darkness for a period of time. It's as if the cosmos itself is coming to Jesus' defense and asking, do you understand the weight of this darkness? Do you understand what is going on in this moment? And finally, this Roman soldier at the foot of the cross, when he sees all of these things, says, surely this was the Son of God. Many people come to Jesus' defense, but Jesus himself speaks not a word. He endures the darkness with few words. He himself abides. He endures. He surrenders to God. And each word that Jesus does speak 
has its place. Notice the way that his carefully chosen few words have their place in the story. After the garden, where Jesus comes out from his prayer time with God that was so heavy and so momentous and so memorable and so dark in a way. Let this cup pass for me. He comes out without any blustering. He comes out calm. He comes out without any flapping about in the wind, although the winds are gathering. Again, to Judas, friend. This is a man who's at peace with what God has called him to. He doesn't voice his complaints to these people. And so Peter, observing this, will write years later in his little epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. But on the cross, once he's nailed down to the cursed tree, then Jesus pours out his lament to God. On the cross, his raw reserves and emotion are unleashed. Why now? Why wait? Why be so careful with your words in front of the authorities and then pour it out on the cross? Because this expression of pain is not for Pilate or the priests, but for God alone. This lament is meant to be heard by the Father. Now Jesus says this in earshot of everyone. It isn't private. In fact, it's meant to be heard. He cries aloud from the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, quoting Psalm 22, which is a psalm of lament, a psalm of lament that cries out to God to be seen, that cries out to God for justice. No, Jesus is not crying this out in privacy or as a secret or to cover it up, but because it is for God. This is what Peter means in his letter when he says he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. There is no way Jesus is getting justice from Pilate or the high priest, but from his Father in heaven, he will get justice. I'd like to read a few of the words of Psalm 22 this morning, and it is uh, somewhat of a long psalm. And because it's a long psalm, and it's famously quoted by Jesus at the cross, and that comes from the first verse, most people probably only know the opening verses of the psalm. Maybe they're familiar with a few verses near the end of the psalm because there's this rip-roaring theological debate about whether God abandoned Jesus at the cross or whether he did not abandon Jesus at the cross and what that means for the theology of the Trinity and what that means to be the Son of God, what it means to have the wrath uh, for sin poured out on you, whether Jesus experienced the pain of hell, and so on and so on. The, the arguments can get really complex and pretty deep. So a lot of people know the beginning of Psalm 22 and the end of it, but the rich wealth of Psalm 22 is in the middle of it. Let me read this psalm this morning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? O oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night and 
am not silent, yet you're enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel, and you, our fathers, put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. I could read more, but the point is clear. This song of lament is not bashful in pouring out to God the pain that the psalmist feels. Instead, he knows that God is the right audience for these heavy and dark words. It's as if with every breath he's breathing in this heavy fog. Everywhere he looks, he only sees the gloom of being under the shadow of death in this death valley. He cries out to God for justice. Verse 21, rescue me from the mouths of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. And yet this psalmist trusts. He pours himself out and trusts himself to the one who judges justly. He has a hope that somehow God will save, that God will hear, that God does not abandon. He finishes the psalm with this future hope. People will proclaim God's righteousness. People yet unborn, for God has done it. He has done it. When Jesus quotes this psalm from the cross, I suppose he might have had in mind uh, these great theological debates that people have raged over for decades and centuries. But I have a sneaking suspicion that what's actually going on in that moment is that Jesus needs an honest conversation with God. And the only honest language for moments like this is the language of lament. Answers may come easy to our lips, but they are not often good answers in times of pain. We've probably all been in the position where we have said something at a funeral or to a person who was grieving, maybe in innocence. We didn't even know, but after the words were out of our mouth, we wished that we would have just offered a handshake or a hug instead of speaking words that came too quickly. And yet there are these moments when God, who's the appropriate recipient of all of our pain, He's the appropriate target for our grief when we feel like we haven't been treated justly. There are moments when God expects us as faithful followers to cry out in lament to Him. Does God abandon Jesus at the cross? Yes, He does. In a sense, He does. He pours out all the wrath of sin on Him. Jesus suffers a a terrible death, it's cruel, they inflict pain on him, he's tortured, he's mocked. Does God abandon Jesus at the cross? No, he doesn't. Of course, the ultimate sense is that he doesn't ever abandon his son. Even when the son is enduring his suffering, God has already written the plan for his resurrection. The problem for us on a moment like this, a Palm Sunday, sitting in the middle of a pandemic, knowing that Easter is coming and that resurrection is coming, is that 
We often want to jump to that part of the story, to that end of the story, and not leave room for the lament, not leave room in the middle to read all the verses of Psalm 22, the ones that deal with the anxiety and the pain. We don't want to rush through this, friends. We don't want to rush quickly to Easter, even though we know it's just around the corner. Oh, in our hearts, we want to jump ahead to relief, to catharsis, but I'm pleading, let's not do it just yet. Let's stay with this weight in this darkness, in this fog-heavy air, and sit with the Christ who suffers and who suffers nobly. Again, turning to Peter in 1 Peter 2, he said, to this we were called. To this we were called. Because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. How do we suffer? How do we speak to God at a time like this? You know, we don't have a lot of uh, songs of lament in modern worship music. We live in a land and at a time when there has been a lot of winning. There's a lot of wealth. There's a lot of food. And in particular, we live in a powerful and fairly successful country. Maybe we haven't had a lot of reasons to voice our lament. Oh, we've had our moments. Within our lifetimes, there's been uh, world wars. There have been other diseases that plagued our planet, although maybe not struck home quite as closely as this. 9-11 comes to mind, or the recession a few years ago. And then we all have our individual moments, but we don't seem to have a lot of songs that express these prayers. Maybe we need some. Maybe we need to regain the Psalms of Scripture that were given to us for just a time as this. Psalm 22 would be a great reading this week. In fact, maybe this week, take Matthew 26 and 27, break it up into pieces, and read it slowly over the course of a couple of days. Maybe read it a few times through. Maybe read it in a different version. To sit with Jesus in this moment. Let's not rush too quickly to Easter. It is coming. God's promise endures. But let's wait with Jesus in this moment. Enduring the shadow of death with Jesus in his crucifixion, knowing that he's with us in our pandemic, prepares us for the light of the gospel. When the darkness is gathered, we're ready for the light. You don't get resurrection without going through the grave. Johnny Erickson Tata who is a pretty famous Christian voice, wrote an article for Christianity Today this week describing a dark day in her journey as a paraplegic. I'm sure she's had many very heavy days, but she picked one to write about to help all of us think through lament, sitting with Jesus, looking for the future hope, but waiting in our moment for the time that God reveals that hope to us. I want to read a few of her words from that article. In her very dark day, she says, I repeated Psalm 43, 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. She said, I kept talking to my soul mentally rehearsing a flood of other heavenly promises. When we see him, we shall be like him, 
For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. That which is sown in weakness will be raised in power. He has given us an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. If we suffer with him, we will reign with him. Before leaving the office that day, she writes, I found my courage and said with a smile, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. The example that Johnny Erickson Tata gives us as she remembers this day is the power of Scripture to transform us while we're in the middle of our suffering. We will not always be able to hit the fast forward button on troubling times in our lives. So it is good for us not to do so when we come to these portions of Scripture where Jesus is enduring the mockery and the shame and the pain of the cross. It is best for us not to fast forward in this moment because we may have moments when we have no choice. We learn with Jesus how to endure, how to abide. You remember Paul in Philippians sitting in that jail cell writing, I want to know Christ, the power of his rising." but he also says to share in his sufferings. As we sing in that little song that's been written about those verses that Paul wrote and slightly elaborated, I want to know Christ and the power of his rising to share in his sufferings conform to his death. When I pour out my life to be filled with his spirit, joy follows suffering and life follows death. We don't get to resurrection except for through the grave. I want to pray for you and for us and for this whole world right now and uh, ask that as we go from this Sunday to next, that this week we read about the cross and that we sit in it, that we trust Jesus uh, not to give us a battle plan or an action plan for today. We don't have any uh, great takeaways. There's nothing really to do here except for to sit with Jesus and to trust the one who judges justly. Let me pray for us. Almighty and eternal God, our refuge in every danger, to whom we turn in our distress. In faith we pray, look with compassion on the afflicted, comfort the mourners, heal the sick, give peace to the dying, strength to the healthcare workers, wisdom to our leaders, and the courage to reach out to all in love, so that together we may give glory to your holy name. All glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever, world without end. Amen. Be blessed, church. We love you, and we can't wait to share Easter together. But today, we sit with Jesus.